All right. Well, cool. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you again, as always. Great to be here. Yeah. Um, and with the book signing coming up, can you just tell us a little bit about how the, the genesis of the book kind of happened to begin with? Well, uh, I have a long history in, in biographies and, and kind of in the creative nonfiction realm. And uh, um, and was working on a book um, with the son of Francis Gary Powers, which became Spy Pilot, which came out two years ago. And one thing led to another. Uh, Gary Powers Jr. Uh, knew the Gellilands because his father had, had known Bob, and they worked at Lockheed at the same time. So that's how the introduction came about, and uh, next thing you know, I'm, I'm on that project and uh, going back and forth to, uh, to the desert of California a lot. Yeah. And so when all that kind of happens, you, you had mentioned that you were already working on Spy Pilot. I found that interesting that you can kind of juggle just these sorts of projects all just kind of transpiring at the same time. How can you talk about your work process, something like that? Oh uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's some sometimes it, it um, because of the primarily because of the COVID backlog. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm juggling. I, I'm ashamed to tell you how many projects right now, <laughs> uh, because it might get me in a straitjacket. Or yeah, something. yeah. Um, but you know, we uh, my my team here uh, in town. We we do documentary films, and then I do that I do my own, you know, Keith Donovan books, and then I have a ghostwriting business and, and some other things. But um, the, uh, the process of uh, typically uh, a book, uh, a, a big book like this, is that you, you gather a certain amount of string, you decide what the story is. Well, well first of all, I, I work with my agent typically in, in deciding, okay, is this book marketable? And then we put together a proposal. Mm-hmm. Well, the proposal would take months. And I'm working oh, on a proposal wow. now. Okay. This one, this book did not require a proposal uh, because it was kind of a different situation. Is that you know my contract with with the family to begin with, but typically, in other words, right now I'm I'm working on a on a book about uh, um, that involves um, uh, someone who has PTSD, mm-hmm. and it's all about trauma and pain. It, actually, it's about two people with a version of PTSD. Yeah. And uh, so we're in the midst of writing a proposal about the, for that book now, and that proposal is then the document that my agent goes out and shops around and and you know and sells it. And, so uh, how 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 in depth typically is a proposal? Like, what's the length on that? And I mean, obviously, it takes you a few minutes to put something like that together to shop it around. Right, right. Very in depth. Okay. Uh, fortunately, I have I have one of the, the best agents in the business, and he forces me to go deep. Okay. <laughs> that's why. Yeah, yeah. That's why I work with him, honestly, because yeah. we've been working together since uh, the late '90s, and um, I, I I enjoy working with him because he. He has a, first of all, he has a great grasp of the market, but also he's a great editor in terms of helping me craft the story and uh, and also understand the market. And the market is constantly changing. It's, okay, this is a really difficult. You know, I don't do celebrity books. Right. I, I'm not doing books about Britney Spears. Yeah, um, nothing against the sure, people sure, who sure, do sure. books no, no, no. about no. Britney Spears. Yeah, but I do mid list uh, history books, creative nonfiction. Um, biogra- biographies, and so that is a that is a, a segment that is getting more and more difficult. Why is that? Because I mean, that's I love that. That's You'll see, my me niche. too. Yeah, yeah, M- me too. And, and and you know, Eric Larson is my hero, and, and, and you know, and uh, um, but 
this is just, it's a really, really difficult niche now. Because I think all kinds of demographic factors. Um, there's a, you know, there's a buyer for that book, but it's just getting tougher and tougher because fewer and fewer books are being published. Mid-list books are, you know, are not as, uh, they're not as profitable as, you know, celebrity books. And mm-hmm. It's just, a, it's a tough, it's a tough business to be in. Sure, I'd imagine so. So when you're doing a proposal like this, I mean, is it for all layman's terms, almost like a thesis paper? It's kind of a, yeah, it, it, uh, it it's the thing that would mo- have the most in common with would be a movie treatment. Okay. Okay. Um, so it has, uh, it's not academic. It's, it's, okay. it's very, uh, it, it's, it's the opposite of academic. It, it has, um, it has to have a certain, um, well, first of all, it has to, it has to sell what the story is. Yeah. So it has a lot of scene setting. It has a lot of, uh, it has a lot of attitude. It has the, the kind of the raison d'etre, the, the reason for being, uh, that you would, that you would understand for a book, um, and it would have a, typically a chapter, uh, um, annotated chapter outline and stuff like that. Okay. So, it, and it usually would have a sample chapter. So, uh, you know, some agents uh, go with smaller proposals, some, but the bottom line is that the, the better your proposal, the better chance you have of selling it. And I would, I'd imagine it would be easier to write once it's green lit, right? I mean, doesn't that provide kind of a pretty substantial outline it it does it does uh, provide a lot of narrative clarity okay there's no doubt about that yeah and uh uh sometimes uh the story changes you know just like in the newspaper business yeah sure Uh, because you have to be open to that well the book's not written i mean that's that's the thing i mean there's gonna be stuff that just comes out of nowhere that's right that you never expected okay that's right well with with bob what was your first meeting with him like very interesting uh you know i uh I was brought in there in February of, of uh, 2015. Okay. And um, like I said, so just to pin a picture, okay, I was still in the finishing stages of my book on Joe Montana, which came out that fall. Right. And and I was in the middle of the, the research phase for Spy Pilot. And um, so uh, I met with Bob with uh, initially with, uh, with several other members of the family. Mm. And uh, you know, I found him engaging and very, uh, very detail oriented, very, um, very smart. Yeah, I gathered that. That was even at so he was what eighty eight at that point. Yeah, uh, he was still sharp as a tack. Yeah, and so uh, we, you know, I had no idea whether you know I would I would uh, get the contract at that point uh, because they were talking to a lot of people. So I mean, I, I felt fortunate that that they wanted to work with me because by by the time by the time Bob decided he wanted to work with me, I I decided I'd want to work with yeah, him just fine because we hit it off. And, yeah, and I, I really liked him. Yeah, and I saw an enormous challenge in the subject matter because you know as Robert, his son, who's become a good friend of mine. Uh, it you know kind of jokingly says uh, Keith didn't know how to didn't know what the blackbird was when he came into this program. That's a slight exaggeration. I did know what the blackbird sure. was. I uh, I did know what the, about the skunk works. I mm-hmm. knew who Kelly Johnson was, but I didn't know who Bob was. Yeah, and I didn't. I certainly, if you had stuck a gun to my head, I couldn't have dis- uh, described the technology. Oh yeah, I- in yeah. the blackbird. Yeah. So that was a great learning process, and you know, it's, as you and I have talked before, you know. One of the great things about what I do is that I get to go to school on all these subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, I know very little about, and I kind of get to have a you know graduate 
school experience. Yeah. And uh, so that's a lot of fun. So when you're talking to someone like Bob, have you done, let's say, you know, you've gotten to work with Bob. Right, here we go. We're taking notes. Off we go. Have, how much homework have you done prior to your new interviews with Bob when it comes to, you know, subject matter? A good bit. Okay. I, yeah, because I, I uh, in, by the time I was ready to write um, Speed, mm-hmm. I had read uh, a bunch of books. Like what? I mean, that was the thing to me. I'm like, wow, this is so in-depth. It was, it was really, really well-written. Well, thank you. And uh, comprehensible. You know, uh, a lot because some of the things that, you know, I would read um, parts of books that dealt with, in other words, I, I wanted to, to read everything that had been written about sure. the first flight, okay, which, uh, we were, which was not that much, oddly mm. enough. Really? Uh, I mean, there are bits and pieces here. Yeah. But not in any great depth. Uh, there was a terrific book that, um, uh, that uh, Ben Rich, the the guy who replaced uh, Kelly Johnson as the head of the Skunk Works, the guy who was actually credited with uh, the inlet system, which mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, not to get too technical here, but the uh, this is central to the Blackbird working. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the number two guy essentially at the Skunk Works during the time of the Blackbird. He wrote a great book uh, with a guy named Leo Janis uh, called, uh, called uh, Skunk Works. And so that was a great nuts and bolts uh, book. And there were a number of others that were, uh, that were more kind of technical books. Yeah. So when you were reading those kind of technical books, I guess it took a little while to kind of get into the, the I don't want to say lingo, or but I mean, it's it's a whole different world of aerospace. I mean, it, it what really, was the process it, with that? It, it really is. Well, and I got to, I got to, to, to interview a lot of uh, interesting people, including a lot of pilots. I've gotten to know a lot of, a lot of pilots out of this process and, uh, and also, uh, one of the the guys who actually worked uh, at the Skunk Works and, and helped the guy, one of the two guys, along with with Ben Rich, who was credited with painting it black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I was fortunate that a lot of people were still around from this project. And obviously, I'm very willing to be interviewed too, which is yeah. very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. So, and you said that you would go out to visit. California for like starches of like what about a week at a time and week then or two at a time yeah 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 and uh, he just stayed consistently just engaged and happy to just tell you anything that's really really cool yeah he was a great storyteller and uh, <laughs> and and I've, I've and I've heard some stories fifteen or twenty times so <laughs> sure, sure. but uh, uh, and also just a lot of fun to be you know it's um I, I guess my uh, in terms of writing books uh, the you know essentially 30 years I've been, been writing books, uh, there are some people that you, uh, that you work with who are more interesting and more, uh, fun, fun, you know, more fun to be around than others. Yeah, sure. Bob is at the top of that scale. He was okay. both interesting and fun to be around. And easy to get in from. I mean, are, do you, I would imagine at some point in your career you've interviewed subjects that are, I don't know, a little apprehensive or you've just got to work to get just the basics out of or Absol- glean a story. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And so what do you typically, I mean, it's just persistence, (laughs) asking it the right way or, I mean, asking someone else instead. I mean, that's, that's. I tell you what, I had an, I don't want to, I don't want to say too much about this because this is a project that is still ongoing, but, but this is jumps to mind. So there was a gentleman uh, in California um, a few years ago who was very reticent to talk to me. And uh, I found out that, um, 
he liked In and Out burgers as much as I do. In and Out burgers for the for those of mm-hmm. you who haven't been to the West Coast, it's like it, it it's 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 like the greatest hamburger in the world. Okay, um, it's the truth. And uh, so I found out that this this gentleman who was you know in his eighties uh, uh, liked In and Out burgers. I found this out from his son, and I wasn't sure he was going to talk to me. I, I thought, okay, I'm going to walk. I'm uh, so I I've got a bag of In and Out burgers, and I'm I'm walking up to his door and. He knows I'm coming, but I'm thinking, okay, from the previous experience with his son, he may slam the door and take my In-N-Out burgers and be done. Uh, long story short of it is that uh, uh, we, we sit down, and, and, uh, and this is an audio interview. Okay, yeah. I'm not going to blow the ending here, but this was an audio in- interview. So when he started saying, yes, no, yes, no, really doesn't work for audio. It's 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 worse for audio even than it is for print. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I was persistent because I've been doing this for a long time, and you know, I I just I, you know, I hopefully if I if I know how to do anything, it's how to get people to talk. And um, he eventually opened up. Yeah. And by the time I left, he was like, "Well, now call me again sometime. I'll be happy to talk." So, <laughs> so honestly, it, it, when I, when I get somebody. Who is reticent to be interviewed, to really mm-hmm. open up, who by the end of the time that we've sat together is that engaging, that really is so fulfilling yeah. from, on a personal level because it's almost like I've achieved something that um, yeah. that is equivalent to the creative side of Well, writing. of course, yeah. I mean, without, I don't know, it's almost like sales where you've got to rely on yes. to get what you want out of someone. I mean... Right, and especially with the clock ticking like that, um, with subject matter like that, with with Bob, obviously he was still very sharp. Um, how much of the process did you rely on? Uh, I guess colleagues, friends. I mean, how much of that story was Bob pretty much on top of for the whole book? Would you say? Um, you know. It, it's in a real, in a book like this. It's always how you choose to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's where the writer of a book like this has the the most impact on the story. It is is choosing the story and how you write it. And there are people. I'm sure that there are other writers who would have come into this story and written it strictly from Bob's perspective, and that he had to be on every page, just as a, a, a filmmaker, uh, you know, would 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 do a, a, a biopic on somebody and he and the the lead character you know has to be on on screen 90 percent of the time i don't write books that way and i never have and um one of the one of the reasons that i like I, I like this realm this this history biography creative nonfiction realm is that i get to, to play with context and so, um, as a as a huge fan of of the right stuff, for instance, the book as well as the characters, right? Um, you know, I got to write all the background about Chuck Yeager and all those guys. Well, how cool was that? You know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I could have written it with with Bob on every page, but I didn't because I felt like the reader needed to to have this um, contextual experience. Yeah, to understand what was going on in the world, what was going on um, in aerospace, 
and also um, the the Cold War. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, because the book obviously sets that out pretty clearly because like I said, at that point in time, you do have the space race, but you also have the ongoing work that's absolutely crucial with the, with the Cold War. So I think the, the, uh, the scene is set pretty well in that. Um, was that pretty much the, the primary goal to begin with, was just that emphasis on that particular period in time? Yeah, I, I think it it kind of uh, developed in that way. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure uh, if if they had gone with someone else. I, I think it's likely that they would have taken a different tack on it. Yeah. Um, but I think um, I just I enjoy um, writing writing stories that that have this the central character, and then you you understand that you need to understand what what the the outside world what the context is mm-hmm. like uh in order to really understand his motivations yeah well something that i was curious about i was hoping you could elaborate on you had a very extensive beginning on his family which i thought was fascinating because obviously it sets up why this guy's so hardworking, brilliant i mean it's the stock clearly where did all of that information come from because i mean it was more than just a few pages on, okay, this is how he was brought up. I mean, it was, it was yeah. very well done. I was very fortunate that, um, that his brother had done a lot of uh, research uh, back into the family and also that his late mother had all these diaries and uh, personal histories that she had written. So that helped tremendously. That's fascinating because, like I said, it does... It helps paint the picture of who the man is and what he becomes. Yeah, because in this case, you, you have to understand that, that his father was kind of a World War One hero, mm-hmm. who was just a, a, a you know um, young guy who was uh, right out of college, who uh, was was swept up in the in the patriotism of World War One, and was lucky to have survived and come ba- comes back to Memphis and, and continues his law practice, and really never wanted to talk about it. Yeah, I imagine not. I think a lot of those people were probably like that. Um, what was, what was one of your favorite stories from hanging out with Bob? Oh, my gosh. There's so many. Sure. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it's funny because uh, there was I, I, getting to um, getting to hang out with him for, for such a, a kind of a long period of time. Um, you know, you, you put together a baseline of kind of the, the key, key moments, and then you're going back and, and then you're, you're, you're spending kind of fly on the wall time with him. And so one one trip, I um, I went with him to the uh, to an, a, a Blackbird history event at uh, March Air Force Base Museum out in Riverside, and they have a Blackbird there, and and uh, uh, they have uh, they have this every two years they have a kind of a Blackbird symposium in which they have uh, experts, uh, uh, technical side, uh, pilots, and so forth come back and, and talk about the Blackbird. And so I was with one with Bob one day, and so to understand kind of the context of his life, so um, in the run up to the uh, to the first flight in '64, uh, which I, I guess we can get into here in a minute, but but he talks uh, about how Kelly Johnson, his boss at the Skunk Works, uh, asked him, "Okay, well, how would you feel about us, uh, you know, raising the landing gear, and uh, <laughs> and you know, going a little bit further on this thing." Yeah. He's getting a little more ambitious uh-huh. as, as things come along, and he so he basically said, uh, "Well, you know, that's no problem. I have complete confidence in our in our in our escape systems." Well, so so here I was, and, and of course I had been through this this story 
many times, okay, and dissected it, going into in depth, uh, spoken with all kinds of people who were there around that time to, in order to get the scenery right. And so, but it was kind of surreal to be at March Field a couple of years after I had first heard this story, and somebody from the audience asked him about that. Well, um, when he said that he was confident in the escape system, of course, what that meant was that, okay, Kelly, um, we got a parachute. I can, I can get out of this thing, so I'm not worried about it. Well, when he said, I'm confident in, my, in our escape system, the, the place erupted in laughter because it was a very sophisticated crowd, and they understood what that meant. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, I'll get my butt out of here. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about yeah. it. We'll lose the plane. Um, we'll keep the talent, though. We'll keep the talent. That's that's right. That's right. So uh, so it's interesting to to see the the the, the stories uh, then kind of take on a life of their own. I guess at the point. Sure. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Um, who were some of the more interesting people you interviewed for this particular book? Oh wow, that's a that's that's hard to say. Um, uh, a number of his uh, great friends. Uh, uh, of course, Ed Yielding, who uh, has become a, a good friend of mine, and we're, we're doing another project that's involved a blackbird that uh, I think people at the time Sarah will be hearing about here in a little in a few months. But uh, Ed Yielding was essentially was uh, technically not the last, but essentially the last man to fly the blackbird on the record flight. Uh, if you go to the Smithsonian, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so he he and Bob became great friends, and and uh, he's a he's a great story in himself because. Um, in 64, part of the tension of the story is that in 64, LBJ announced the program. This secret program. LBJ is all worried about getting, you know, elected uh, in 64 against Goldwater. And he, he decides to announce his secret program, okay, which, they, which they've been protecting it from the Russians for yeah. four years. Well, but the irony of that, of course, is that this young guy, this... Uh, this uh, this teenager over in Florence, Alabama, hears about this on television, and it suddenly becomes his life's ambition. Right. And so, the, at the end of the book, at the end of in, in, toward the end of Bob's life, they become great friends. So it's funny how how life works out. That was fascinating. That guy, um, you know, Jim Lovell. Yeah, it became a, one of Bob's right. friends. Uh, Jim Lovell, uh, you know, of course, immortalized by Tom Hanks sure. in Apollo thirteen. Uh, Gene Cernan, the, the last man uh, to, to walk on the moon. Um, Bob Cardenas. Now, Bob Cardenas is such a fascinating character. General Bob Cardenas, um, and he just recently turned 100 years old. And uh, Bob and, and Bob Gilliland were great friends. Bob Cardenas is the guy who, in 1947, was in charge of Chuck Yeager. He was the guy who was running the, the detail, and he flew the B-29 that dropped Chuck Yeager's plane. Yeah. Um, and so uh, you'll kind of see, uh, as part of the, the, the background here, you'll, you'll, you'll see what, uh, what Cardenas and, and Yeager and those guys went through in 47. So uh, I could go on and on. I mean, there's just so many fascinating people in the book. Well, with your previous work with Spy Pilot, um I'd imagine there was some kind of, was there any kind of crossover with, with the uh, interview process or just with some information that you gleaned for Powers? Saying, well, I might 
you know, need that for something. A, a little bit. The, the, uh, the main uh, connective tissue was Kelly Johnson. Okay, yeah, that would make sense. You know, because Kelly Johnson designed the U2 uh, as well as the Blackbird. Yeah. And so the, the, the one thing that, that I came into uh, speed, uh, having been strengthened by with Spy Pilot, was my knowledge of the Skunk Works okay. and how it worked, and Kelly Johnson. Where did the majority of your information regarding, like, that first flight come from? I mean, some firsthand, I'd imagine, and other supplemental materials? Mostly firsthand. Okay. Mostly firsthand, because there was not much published, uh, you know, right. a, a little bit here and there. But, of course, there was a complete uh, security blackout at that point. It was announced that there was a flight. Mm-hmm. It was announced who the guy was, basically, but, but that's it. Yeah. But I, I talked to a number of people who were there that day, and, um, and you know, you think back uh, – this the 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 early parts of this program, of course, were run by the CIA before they the last version, the Bob's uh, final version of the SR seventy one was the Air Force, but he started out with the Air, uh, CIA version, and so uh, in those days with the CIA, as the the pilot is coming in to be debriefed and everything, well, he has to talk about you know what happened in the flight in enormous detail, yeah, you know because they got to find out what needs to be fixed and how it performed and so forth. Well. Um, so there were no pencils were not now, now no pens no tape recording devices no nothing I found that fascinating too how, how sharp his memory was because it was an absolute essential part of it he oh, couldn't write anything down couldn't write anything down because of the CIA wow. yeah. so so because of that uh, um, we we found Bob's debriefing transcript which was very helpful which is never, which was once, of course, classified. I was about to say, yeah. A lot of this stuff was once classified. Yeah. How did you come across that? Is it just like a FOIA? Requ- I mean, how do you? No, actually, we, we found that in family files. So, yeah, what about that? That's awesome. Stuff like that. Well, in your, in your I guess, your history of interviewing and uh, writing about, obviously, very influential Americans and stuff like that, um, with pilots, are they, would you? Say the majority of them are pretty extroverted, or are there all different types that might just not really want to have any good stories, or just not really be willing to share about their experience? I mean, that's a really good question. I I, I would say my experience has been um, that they're more than likely extroverted, but some are extremely introverted. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, I guess the main thing that I, that I probably learned in that realm is that um, the image of the kind of the swashbuckling um, daredevil pilot, uh, test pilot, is not accurate. Okay. All of the test pilots or high-level uh, pilots in the Blackbird and so forth, they're very meticulous. Uh, they, they're, they're going for that edge, but... They're not reckless, right? Because I think it, there came a point, you know, maybe with the uh, basically the beginning of the jet age, is that uh, you really you couldn't be reckless. That line is so thin. Yeah. So Bob was not a daredevil. Yeah. At all. Well, I think, and I think you you lay that out pretty well in the book too, where I mean, you do have to have a certain amount of confidence, obviously, but you're also very very in tune to. The logistics, the planning, the the limitations that are upon the craft that they're trying to navigate, and there really is no real room for error. But there is that, like you said, that little gray area where you do want to see if it will, you know. I guess 
that small amount where you can be a daredevil, but you really wouldn't call it that. It was, it's a little bit more meticulous than just, well, let's just see what this thing's got. Yeah, I think, the, and there is an example of uh, in, uh, in the first flight of the SR-71, December 22nd, 1964, which, um, in which something, something happens on the flight that Bob basically has to decide whether, how to deal with it, yeah. right? And um, the reality of it is that in, in most cases, um, he thought, like it, thought and acted like an engineer. You know, checking this, checking that, you know, going to this line, but not further. But there were times where it was expected that he was going to take chances that the engineers on the ground thought were unwise, because that was his job. Mm -hmm. The question is when to listen to each of those contradictory voices. Yeah. And that's what made them great. Yeah. That's where the great test pilots existed. Well, you think about all the great test pilots in the in the fifties and sixties who who didn't make it. Yeah. And um, you know, Bob was was always harping to, on to me about how uh, you know there were some guys who just had so much ego, had so much confidence that it would become a weakness because they would allow themselves to, you know, in other words, uh, to, to get in a situation where they were imperiled and, oh, I can go further and further and further until, and, until they finally go so far, it's too late for them to correct it. Yeah. And he was a guy who clearly understood where that line was. Yeah. And the amazing thing is he never had to parachute out. Yeah, I found that extremely fascinating throughout his entire career. Well, and, that, and kind of we go back to, you know, the right stuff too where, I mean, with the the spouses living every day knowing that i mean it just when they oh, yeah. see him off that could be it he just really seemed to embrace it and just knew that's what he that was his calling you know despite all the things that he could have done back home in memphis and right you think about it. here's a, here's a guy who um you know he served his country in, in the korean war as, as a fighter pilot and came back and and was a was a, a test pilot for the air force for a while and then his dad who owned a big a building in Memphis basically said, you know, come come help me. So he spent four years in Memphis, um, you know, just working in real estate. Real estate, yeah. And um, and his father dies, and he and he he migrates to this other world. And and you think that, and of course, people can get all the deal, details of this in the book, but but uh, the uh, the thing that drew him uh, to uh, to you know migrate to this other world to this to this sense of adventure was the death of an American hero. Um, so, uh, who died in, a, in an F-104. And the F-104 was the first Mach 2 jet. And he thought, man, I could go fly that. And that leads to the whole thing. And, and so, so he made this very conscious decision to go to, to walk away from this very safe, upper-crust life in Memphis. He, ne- he, he never had to do anything risky no, for the rest no, of his no, life. No, no, he had it made. He had it made. Well, in your career with writing about folks, uh, what would you say? Because, I mean, obviously everyone's personality is different, and, you know, you're writing about a myriad of subjects. What seems to be the one universal truth when it comes to interviewing people in terms of just kind of getting the best out of them? What, what do you think is uh, the constant that you can always fall back on? Uh, I think the most important thing in interviewing is listening. Uh, I try to listen very hard when I'm, when I'm talking to somebody. Um, and also to understand what their triggers are. Um, you know, there's some things that, that people want to talk about and some pe- things that people don't want to talk about. And, of course, 
you usually want to talk about the things they don't want That's to talk right. about. <laughs> but it's just, you know, from there it's just human nature, right? Yeah. Uh, but some of the some of the best things that I've gotten out of people, uh, they didn't want to talk about to begin with. Yeah. But um, uh, which is not to say I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't berate people. But the the point is that if you listen to people and you understand what they're about and you're respectful. Um, most people put in the right situation want to tell you more than maybe they think they do. Um, I'm not talking about secrets. I, I'm just talking about they, they, if, you, if you give people the opportunity to think deeply about their life and how it connects, how the dominoes connect, and you see the humanity in their life, then you never can tell what might result. Yeah. So what going forward, do you have any projects you can talk about at this point? Or I imagine you've got two or three going, if I'm uh, I do. Right. I, I do. Uh, you know, we have, uh, we have a couple of, couple of documentary film projects that I'm not ready to talk about yet, but they're in kind of final stages of development. And I have a, uh, another uh, history book that involves Vietnam War. Right. And that's all I can really say right now. That's great. Okay. And then the uh, event here, I guess, Friday at Boyd Gallery. Right. Uh, what, what do you anticipate for that? Is it just kind of a Q&A? And- yeah, we're going to do a kind of a Q&A uh, starting about 6 or 6.15, maybe get, let people get in a little bit and, uh, you know, talk for 30 minutes or whatever, as long as people have questions, and sure. then we'll do a book signing upstairs. But, uh, you know, talk a little bit about uh, the Skunk Works, uh, Bob Gilliland, uh, Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, Area 51, you know. Did you learn a little bit more about that than you thought you would with this project? Or is it pretty much still just as weird and nebulous as, you know, the rest yeah, of Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, ne- <laughs> pretty nebulous. Uh, you know, it's interesting because this is, this is where we've come as a, as a country, I guess, post-Cold War, is that I went to a convention. Uh, no, not one of those conventions. <laughs> I went to a convention early on in this project uh, out in Vegas, and it was there's this great group called Roadrunners International, and it's all of the people you you can you can qualify for this if you worked at Area 51, hmm. and so all sorts of support people, pilots, no little green men. I'm sorry, right, I right. I did not meet any little green men, but but seriously, uh, you know, a, a lot of people worked at Area 51 back in the day, on some really cool projects. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, too, I guess if you're working out there, you're very compartmentalized. Like I think they just keep you in, you know, in a need-to-know basis, and so everyone is just working very, very independently. Well, I'll give you an example. There's a, there's an American hero who uh, uh, won't give away, but in, in the book, but um, a, a great pilot, Cold War pilot, who uh, was working on one another project, and he was working out of Area 51. This is in the uh, early '60s. And, um, in fact, he was a guy who chased, uh, chased Bob in, in a plane every day. And uh, so he moved over to another project. Well, his family had been living in Vegas. Well, of course, you know, Vegas driving to Area 51, uh, you know, it's just it's, it's a long drive, but yeah. it's, it's a drive. Well, uh, so they basically said, okay, when you're moving over to this other program, uh, which essentially was the Blackbird program, that, uh, okay, you, you can't live in Vegas anymore with your family. That's too close. So he had to move his family to California 
so he could fly in on these. They had these special constellate Lockheed constellations, the mm-hmm. Connies. They had a special air force that flew only from Burbank to Area 51, wherever Area 51 was, right? right? Not that I know. Um, but it, it, so it flew back and forth so that, in other words, uh, his, he had to move his family, family to California so he could commute out of the back door. That's how paranoid they were at that point. <laughs> that's fascinating. Well, well, I think that's really about it. Uh, anything else you want to plug about the book? I mean, I, like I said, I commend you for laying out something as complicated as aerospace in a way that I can understand it and appreciate it. And I, I said it before, these kinds of books are just right up my wheelhouse. I love them. Well, I appreciate it. You know, it's just it, it was a lot of fun. And uh, a great challenge narratively, and uh, anybody wants to wants to come out to, to the Boyd Gallery. By the way, uh, uh, Friday night at from six to eight. And uh, by the way, I'm sure that uh, uh, be some great uh, David Boyd Jr. artwork there for you if sure. if, if you really want to buy something good. <laughs> awesome. Well, Keith, thank you very much, man.